Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From the city that brought you some of the world's most important discoveries and the Sinclair C5, this is the Cambridge Science Festival podcast. This is the third episode of the Cambridge Science Festival podcast, and I'm Azzy Katiri from The Naked Scientists. In this episode, what do you like about chemistry? So, are you ready? Okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, it fell that second. Mira Centilingam discovers electrifying action from a line of vegetables. We've got the aubergine connected to a parsnip, a tomato, orange apple, kiwi, and then finishing off with the grapefruit. Chris Smith looks the sheep in the eye. What's the layer below it, Adam? We can see like a copper-coloured layer here, and this is something called the iris. This is basically just the coloured part of your eye. So this sheep had brown eyes? Yes, it would have done. And what a newly invented species of dinosaur looks like. Black hands and blue head and brown beak. But first, snap, crackle and bang. Anna Lacey finds out what it is about chemistry that lights our fire. Chemistry. It's so boring, right? (laughs) Wrong. I like all the wackiness and exploding stuff. I like blowing stuff up. Finding out how everything works. It's quite interesting, really. And how about you? What do you like about chemistry? Well, mainly blowing things up, but it's quite interesting to find out how it works in the first place. Now, I have at the back here a compound where nitrogen is combined with iodine and just some solid on the filter paper down here. This is very unstable, though, and this is unstable because it wants to form nitrogen gas that is very, very stable and iodine. So it should be the case that I can just add a photon of light, a ball... Okay, and this should go off. Oh, yes! (laughs) My name's Peter Wobbers, and I'm a teaching fellow in the Department of Chemistry at the University of Cambridge. Of all the different children I've been speaking to today, explosions seem to be very popular. Why do you think that is? I think it's just the excitement of of seeing sort of flames and the loud bangs and sort of feeling the experience of some of these, uh, you know, the heat wave rush past you. I mean, it it is very exciting and it's things that children get very enthusiastic about, absolutely. What else can we burn? Some Rice Krispies, yes. And, of course, you also seem very enthusiastic in the lectures doing these experiments. What is it about these kind of demonstrations and doing these lectures that really does it for you? For me, the, the key thing really is to, to try and get across some simple scientific ideas, but in a really exciting way. And I think it is possible to do this when, when you see the reaction from the audience and when they go away actually having learnt something, but uh, you know, maybe they don't realise they've learnt something because they're so enthusiastic about what they've seen. I, I, that's that's you know, what gets me going, I think. We'll add some liquid oxygen. They are just like breakfast time. <laughs> Slosh it on. Apply a light. 
My name's James Keeler. I'm one of the lecturers in the chemistry department here. And uh, today we've been hosting a Salters Festival of Chemistry, which is a chemistry competition for children of about 11, 12 years old. And they come and do a couple of experiments in the lab and have a demonstration lecture. And the idea is to infuse them about uh, chemistry. What kind of experiments have you done here today? They've done two experiments. In the morning, they do quite a devious little thing, which is uh, they use a chemical analysis in order to work out who committed a crime. And this afternoon, we actually gave them a very challenging experiment, which was separating different coloured food dyes using chromatography. My name's Guy. I'm a first-year PhD student in the chemistry department here. So, Guy, can you just tell me a bit about what the setup's like here? We've got a long tube of glass called a column, and we've filled it up with cellulose, which is basically a plant extract. And then we flush it all through with water, and then on the top of the cellulose, we load the two food dyes. And then at the bottom of the column, the water starts to drip off at the bottom, and bit by bit, the two dyes, which were completely mixed together, separate off. What kind of colours uh, are you getting there, Fionn? It started off kind of a purpley blue, but um, it's changing into blue and red. And which kind of colour came out first? The blue came out first. I'm not sure whether that's something to do with density or something, but um, I'm not sure. So, yeah, we can see it running down this very long, thin tube here. Why is it that the blue runs faster than the red? Uh, the blue just interacts less strongly with the cellulose. The red dye interacts more strongly, so it moves more slowly through the cellulose. So, hydrogen. One of the properties, of course, is that it's lighter than air, as you can see there. But it could also act as a fuel. So, are you ready? OK, here we go. We look at our world around us on a, a level that we can interact with. Perhaps physics is slightly subatomic and weird, but uh, chemistry is, is our day-to-day -day world in the way that we can experience it. Dr Peter Wathers talking to Anna Lacey. There'll be more chemistry action later on during the programme, but now bugs, bugs and more bugs. In fact, something like a thousand trillion of them live inside your body. Here's Chris Smith talking to Dr Gillian Fraser about hers. I'm Gillian Fraser, I'm a lecturer here in pathology and what we've done here today is try to show people the types of bacteria that are associated with their bodies. And the way we've done this is we've actually decided to culture some of the bacteria that we've found on ourselves. For example, I've taken a toothpick and I picked out some of the plaque between my teeth and then I plated it out onto an agar plate. And then I've taken those bacteria and stained them put them under the microscope to see what's there. So who's the most germ-infested pathologist in the department, as far as we can tell? Is that you? Yes, I think that honour definitely goes to me. We found some pretty interesting bugs lurking in my mouth. There were some fusobacterium, which are these long branching bacteria. We also found some streptococci. Often those cause things like sore throats, but some streptococci are actually quite good for us and protect us from bad bugs. I was going to say, because you don't look ill, you don't look germ-infested, so how can you have all these bugs flourishing on you and in you and, and yet not be unwell? They're actually very important for us to help um, prevent bad bacteria from gaining a foothold on our epithelial surfaces. They colonise these surfaces, prevent the bad bacteria from being able to stick there, and they can also produce things like toxins against these bad bacteria which kill them. And how do these bugs get about? Well, 
Actually, if we go over and look at this microscope here, we've got some uh, lab E. coli K12. These are motile bacteria. You can see them moving about quite rapidly. Now, these bugs have these amazing rotary nanomachines called flagella. They're long propellers that extend from the bacterial cell surface and they rotate at amazingly high speeds, up to 60,000 RPM. I don't mean to insult bacteria, but you know, they're not known for their intelligence. So how do they know which way to swim? Well, actually, uh, bacteria are quite intelligent. They have a memory. And, in fact, they can sense their environment. They can taste the chemicals in their environment. And they can also remember what their environment was like about a second ago so they can make a decision as to whether their life is getting better or whether it's getting worse. And they can move in a direction that takes them to a better place, maybe where there's nutrients. Naked Scientist's Crazy Science Facts number 217. If you arranged all of the ants on Earth nose to tail, you could produce a line 126 light years long. We think there are 300 million trillion ants on Earth. That's three followed by 20 zeros. As an ant is about 4 millimetres long, that means you could produce a column of ants 12 followed by 20 zeros millimetres long. Since light travels at 300 million metres per second, it would take a beam of light shone along the column of ants 126 years to travel from the first ant to the last one. It's not just biology and chemistry that ignite the imagination during the festival. There's also plenty of geology and paleontology to stick your teeth into. So we sent Ben Valsler to explore the world that is Time Truck. The Cambridge Science Festival relies on undergraduate volunteers giving their time and expertise. This is especially true of touring geology exhibition The Time Truck. I spoke to Annette Shelford of the Sedgwick Museum. Time Truck is a fantastic, fantastic project. It's been running for about eight years now and it's entirely run by undergraduates from the Department of Earth Sciences. They all do it on a voluntary basis. It started off as a, a sort of an enclave of the Sedgwick Club, which is the undergrad geology club, um, and it then grew so much and so quickly that it became a separate entity in itself as a society. Well, my name's Lydia. I'm a fourth-year geology student and I've been doing Time Truck for two years now. And today I'm working on the minerals, so we show the children all these different kinds of minerals. We talk about where the colours come from, how we would work out which ones are which. We get them to feel them, have a look at the shapes, and try and work out where they might have come from. What is this bubble stuff? This one? It does look a lot like bubbles, doesn't it? This is a mineral called hematite. Hematite. Hematite, and it's got lots of iron in. And the reason it's red is because you you know that your blood has lots of iron in, and that's why it looks red. That's why this looks red as well. And this bubbly shape, it isn't actually made of bubbles. Scientists call this a botryoidal shape. Botryoidal. Botryoidal, yep. There's another sample of this mineral in this tray somewhere. It doesn't look exactly the same. Which yeah. It's a slightly different colour, but it has the same sort of shape. So that's how we can tell which one it is. It doesn't smell. It doesn't smell. Well, normally, we can't use our sense of smell to tell minerals apart, except for this one. So do you want to have a sniff of that one? Oof. It doesn't smell very nice, does it? It smells a bit like smoke, a bit like matches, do you think? A bit. It a bit, doesn't it? This is sulphur. It used to be used to make matches. Also, people say it smells a bit like rotten eggs. Not a very nice smell. And some volcanoes smell like that, smell really nasty, because we find this around volcanoes. 
Ah, now this one, it does look the same kind of shape, but this one's called malachite. This one has lots of copper in it. So it's, this one's green because it has copper. What is this? This one. It looks like a marble that's been shaped into a square. It's basically metal. It looks like metal, doesn't it? It's really shiny. What kind of metal does it look like? Silver. It's a bit like silver. It, looks, it almost looks a bit gold, doesn't it? In some gold. views. Now this is called pyrite, and the other name for it is fool's gold. Do you know why it's called that? Because it's silver? No, this has sulphur and iron mixed together. But this is called fool's gold because when the miners went to the west of America looking for gold, they'd find this, and they thought they were rich. Because they thought they'd found lots of gold, but it's not, and it's not really worth anything, unfortunately. But it's quite interesting. And why do you think it's that cube shape? Because somebody carved it. It looks like someone carved it, doesn't it? But actually, fool's gold grows in that shape. The crystals grow like that. So they were picked out of a rock already in that shape. Pretty amazing, isn't it? This year we've done something called Creatosaurus, which is a competition about designing your own dinosaur. So imagining um, different habitats and different conditions that have existed in the past and fitting a dinosaur that we haven't discovered yet into that habitat that you've imagined and deciding what it would be like. Green and pink legs, black hands and blue head and brown beak. He's bugs and he's a scared dactyl. There are prizes to be won for the best designed dinosaur and the best will be displayed on www.sedgwickmuseum.org. It's really, really, really big and it's got giant ears. It's got giant ears because they can't see where it's going and so it can hear where it's going instead. Why can't it see where it's going? Because it's so tall. It can see further but it can't see short range. So things that are right in front of it, it could accidentally trample so it listens instead. Okay, so it would also need to be able to hear if there are predators by its feet. Yes, but I don't think anything would be smart, uh, stupid enough to attack that. Are you going to give it a name? Uh, yeah, it's called the Alex Roxosaurus. It eats just trees, very big trees. Well, it's got a really big mouth that opens four ways, and it's really evil, and it eats Alex's Roxosaurus. <laughs> he thinks they're very tasty, especially the ears. <laughs> and it can move quite fast. But it doesn't have to move that fast because they're chasing those and they like move the speed of a snail. And what noise does it make? Like... Yeah, that. Great stuff. Thanks, Ben. Now, if you'd like to know more about Time Truck and when you'd be able to visit them, check out their website at esc.cam.ac.uk forward slash time truck. Now, how do you know what your different organs look like? Well, one way is to find a picture in a book, and the other, it seems, is to visit the Cambridge Science Festival, as Chris Smith discovers. OK, well, I'm now here with Adam, with Lewis, Michael and Mark, and something that looks very gooey, sheep's eyeballs. So why are we playing with them? Well, basically, we're going to dissect them and have a look at the different parts of the eye to try and discuss some of the jobs that they do and some of the things that can possibly go wrong. Have you ever done anything like this before, uh, Michael? No, I've never done anything like this before. Are you interested to see what goes on inside eyes, then? I've always wondered what it looks like, the eye. Mark? Yeah, it's just too bad it's not actual human eyes. 
I'm glad it's not. I wouldn't like someone dissecting my eye. But can you just talk us through this then, uh, Adam, uh, and sort of take us through each step of what we find in the eye? Okay. So if you begin to look at the eye from the outside, you can see these pink bands that attach to the eye. And these are the muscles that are involved in moving the eye so we can look in all different directions without actually moving our head. Yeah, so they pull the eyeball in different directions and, and make it point in different things. But what about the front? On the front, we've got something called the cornea. And this acts like a window to let light into the eye. So that's where your contact lens would sit, wouldn't it? If you were looking at someone's eye, that, it would be sitting on the front of there. Yes, that's right, yes. So the light can pass through the contact lens and through the cornea and into your eye. Now Mark's got some gloves on. Mark, what does it feel like if you sort of squeeze that cornea? Uh, it feels a bit like the plastic you get in bottle caps. It's a bit hard, yet... Oh. Yeah, it's also just run away across the desk. But um, What's the layer below it, Adam? We can see like a copper-coloured layer here, and this is something called the iris. This is basically just the coloured part of your eye. So this sheep had brown eyes? Yes, it would have done, yes. And inside the iris, we can see a hole. And this is their pupil. This is their black part on your eye. And this can get bigger and smaller, depending on like the different conditions. So when it's like really bright outside, the pupil will be quite small to limit the amount of light getting into the eye. Whereas if you're in a darkened room, the pupil will be quite big to let as much light in as possible to try and give you the best picture of what's going on. So if we then go a bit deeper, what's, so what's then, in it? If we then go a bit deeper, we can see the lens within the eye. Do you want to just have a feel of the lens? To... Oh, it's a bit gooey. Feels like jelly, really, when it falls out of the pot. Is it hard, Mark? Yeah, the middle bit's quite hard, like a rock in the middle. Is that what you thought a lens of an eye would look like? No, not really. I never really thought that much about what's really inside your eyes. So, Adam, would that work in the same way as a camera lens? It just changes its thickness in order to focus light? Yes, that's right. So it's probably not as hard as the lens in the sheep's eye because it's quite an old eye. But in your eye, it will change shape. It'll get fatter and thinner depending on whether you're looking at something uh, closer up or further away. So for reading, uh, it might be quite a fat like the lens. Whereas if you're like, looking at something in the distance or while driving, the lens might be quite thin. A really exciting bit. Let's get inside because I can't okay. wait to see what's actually inside the eyeball. It's quite dark in there. Yes, that's right. It's uh, pigment epithelium, okay? And that just basically absorbs any excess light, stop light bouncing around inside the eye. So it helps make the image we, we see clearer. And, and the jelly stuff? Uh, and the jelly stuff. Uh, this helps just basically to give the eye its shape, really, and it's clear to allow as much light through as possible. So light would come in through the lens, through that jelly, and then hit the, the back layer of the eye? Yes, that's right. It hit the back layer of the eye, something called the retina, Okay. Uh, and on the retina are lots and lots of receptors for the light. They'll receive the light into the eye, and then they'll transfer it into a message that can be sent along nerves to the brain, and then the brain can then interpret these messages to like, form the image that we see. What's that bright patch? Because the, there's a sort of blackness across the back of the eyeball, but then there's a much lighter patch there too. Yeah, that's right. This is um, something that's only found within a sheep's eye, and it acts a bit like a, a mirror. So the light that's coming in is kind of intensified so that the sheep is a lot more sensitive to light and that's a lot more important for a sheep to be able to say, see a wolf in a distance and uh, the consequence of this is that the sheep can't necessarily see colour whereas we can because the sheep doesn't necessarily need to know whether it's a brown wolf or a grey wolf it just needs to know it's a wolf and run away Guys, do you think this is helpful being able to look inside things like eyeballs to see how they work? What do you think, Michael? Oh, it helps you understand how your own body works and how the eye works and how you can see. And it really is like an eye opener, really. 
It's a good pun. And, and Lewis, uh, if you could uh, dissect another organ, what would it be? I think I would have to choose the lungs. Important, important organ. Always interested in what it looks like inside. And just as a sort of parting comment, what do you think of the, of the Cambridge Science Festival? Oh, it's amazing. I, I came here last year and I was hooked. <laughs> are you sort of natural-born scientists? What, what year are you in at school? Uh, year 11. In, yes, I really love science. hope to get a degree in it one day. So you'd like to pursue it as a career? Yes. Thanks, guys. The Cambridge Science Festival, supported by the Wellcome Trust. For more information, go online at cambridgescience.org. Have you ever wondered about using the content of your fridge as a battery? Or perhaps whether it's possible to walk on slime? Well, our own Mira Senthilingam is at the chemistry department to find out. So I've just come into the chemistry department at the university and um, this is where chemistry in action is taking place. And it seems it's overtaken the entire building because the whole building has been divided into various zones with different hands-on activities. So I'm just going to wander through and see what it's all about. My name is Lech Milroy and I'm a third year PhD at the University of Cambridge in the chemistry department. Right, so what's going on here? What we've done here is we've set up vegetables and fruits in array and we've connected them in series. And what we're trying to do is create a current pass through all of these different vegetables and fruits. And at the end, we're trying to be incredibly ambitious and to sound the buzzer. And so an electric circuit of fruit. That's right, yes. Can you just describe which, each vegetable as you go along? OK, we've got starting off with a carrot and then a large potato, even a turnip mm-hmm. with a smiley face on it. We've got <laughs> a courgette, a little grape which is sitting on a lemon, passing through to a cucumber... And then up here we've got this really menacing melon. <laughs> with an angry face drawn. With an angry face, not happy. It's because the current's passing through him and without his consent. And we've got the aubergine connected to a parsnip, a tomato, orange, apple, kiwi, and then finishing off with the grapefruit. And we're using zinc and copper electrodes. The negative is the zinc, so we connect that to the negative part of the buzzer. And then the uh, copper is going to be our positive. And now I'm going to connect it to the buzzer. And this current is all coming from this series of vegetable and fruit. The problem is, with vegetables, the resistance is higher than in, say, a standard household battery, but is low enough for us to generate a sufficient current to operate small devices, such as this buzzer. But to run a small bulb, it would require a lot more current than what can be generated here. I've just come into the slime zone, which seems to be the busiest section of the entire building. So let me see if I can get hold of someone doing the experiment. I've come up to something that looks like a big bath full of milky water, and I'm here with Ellis. What's going on here? Well, what we've got is we've got water and cornflour mixed to create what is a non-Newtonian fluid, in that the more force you put on it, it becomes more solid. And as you can see, it's uh, sticking to the children's fingers as they take their hands out. But you can put your hand in very easily if you use little pressure. Um, We've also done a demonstration where you can walk on it, so it's effectively walking (laughs) on water. Right, we've got a demonstrator walking on... Walking on water, essentially, here. Uh, if I sit still, I sink. <laughs> now it's hard. <laughs> so 
So essentially what the children are putting their hands into and just coming out with goo, one of the explainers has just managed to walk on top of. But unfortunately, when he stood still for too long, he sunk right down to the bottom and got stuck. So I'm here with Joe, who's the person that just walked on water, supposedly. What does happen? Um, basically, I just ran across our cornflour slime mixture. We've got two parts cornflour to one part water, and we've been mixing it for the past hour. And, uh, yeah, we can, if you move fast, you can run on it, but if you stop, you sink. You're recovering now in a... Yeah, that's right. The hardest bit is getting out. Like, once you've sunk, like, moving out of the slime is really tough. <laughs> Thanks, Mira. Wouldn't want to be him. Well, that's it for this episode, but join us again in a few days' time when you get to find out what all this is about. In the meantime, a big thank you to all our contributors and to the Naked Scientist team. Ben Valsler, Sabina Miknovich, Mira Senthilingam, Dave Ansel and Anna Lacey, and to the Wellcome Trust for their support. This program was produced and presented by me, Azik Katiri, and the editor was Chris Smith.